Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll hear from folks who have moved to Appalachia as a refuge during the pandemic. And so we brought the property site unseen with only 12 photos on the listing. Last year, West Virginia's New River Gorge became the state's first national park. That change is attracting even more visitors. But what will it mean for the park's more traditional users? But I learned how to hunt in the gorge. You know, it's my father, and uh, that's where I learned trees. That's where I learned direction. It's just a beautiful place. I mean, something about watching the fog rise and hearing the roar of the river and the sunset. I mean, it's not just about the hunting. And we'll find out how a 91-year-old restaurant in downtown Roanoke is coping with new growth all around it. What's kept you coming back? Because it's never changed. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today we're listening back to an encore episode of Inside Appalachia. It begins with a Saturday Night Live sketch spoofing the pandemic-fueled passion for browsing online real estate listings. Are you bored? Looking for something to spice up your life? Oh yeah. The real estate market across the country is hot right now, and it's no joke, even in parts of Appalachia that have lagged behind trendier destinations. Raymond Joseph, the CEO of the West Virginia Association of Realtors, says he's been hearing from lots of people in cities looking to buy second homes in Appalachia. They look at this like, you know, I can go buy some land, I can have a house, I can ride my four-wheeler, I can hike. A lot of communities are welcoming these home buyers. After all, many parts of Appalachia are losing population. New residents often bring new economic energy. But will these new residents stay? And if so, how might they change the culture? Will our infrastructure, roads, schools be able to support them? Our producer, Roxy Todd, spoke with three different people in the churn of the Appalachian real estate market, beginning with a woman who lives in my home community of Floyd County, Virginia. Last summer, 34-year-old Bijou Finney and her husband Drew packed up everything they owned in Austin and headed east. They'd just become the owners of a 75-acre homestead in southwest Virginia. I had never been to Virginia in my entire life, and so we brought the property site unseen with only 12 photos on the listing. Their mortgage is about the same as rent in downtown Austin. Bijou runs her own video production business. Drew works in the tech industry. They can both do their jobs remotely, and for a couple of years, they've been itching to get out of the city. We were really um, interested in learning how to live off the land and be more sustainable, have a simpler life. At first, it was just this idea they had. Then in March, they began putting their dream into motion, looking at real estate online. I think when the pandemic hit, it really, really got the fire lit under us to want to go and do this. She and Drew had a list of things they knew they wanted, preferably not too close to an ocean to avoid hurricanes, and not out west, with so much land vulnerable to forest fires. And um, it was actually really hard to find something that was affordable and headland and had water and had internet in the United States. When they drew circles around the swaths of land that were the least likely to be hit by climate disasters, they settled on someplace in Appalachia. Being more connected to nature has really helped my state of mind and and my health, definitely. And we've only been here since June, so this is all still very new to me. The Finneys are still learning to live in a rural community. Bijou learned how to use a wood stove via Zoom from the former homeowner. She says a few of her friends in Texas have been following her journey and are interested in moving to a rural community, too. And she's met at least three people in Floyd who have recently moved there from out of state. I do see a smaller kind of back to the land movement happening like it did in the 60s and 70s. A hundred miles north in Lewisburg, West Virginia, Erin Gutierrez and her husband are getting settled into their house, which they purchased back in January. It's twice as big as what our house was in Florida. Erin was a teacher. And when the pandemic hit, she decided to retire early, since she had some medical complications. Then, tragedy hit. She and her husband lost their son in a motorcycle accident. Soon after that, Erin's mom died from COVID-19. These losses made her question a lot about her life. 
I realized that you just don't know in this life what's going to happen. And so you have to, you have to take those risks and, and make it what you want it to be. Erin and her husband decided to move closer to their daughter and her family in Thomas, West Virginia. Their house in Florida sold the day it went on the market. Her husband drove up to West Virginia, put a bid on a house he liked, and they moved in the next month. So far, she loves it. Lots of trees and then the open space in the back where we, we see deer, cows up on the hill. We love cows. <laughs> the town where they bought their home, Lewisburg, is one of the more popular destinations in the state. But for the first time ever, every geographic region in the state is experiencing a housing shortage, says Raymond Joseph. CEO of the West Virginia Association of Realtors. People want to come to West Virginia right now. We're seeing that all over the state. There simply aren't enough homes to keep up with demand. And that's putting extra pressure on people like Olivia Morris, who has been struggling to find her dream home in West Virginia's New River Gorge. She's 31 years old and wants to stay here in her home state. But she's starting to question if she can afford it. She loves the area for its rock climbing, its swimming, and hiking. I really wanted to live within the town of Fayetteville. And you have a great downtown and Main Street, lots of different things to do and places to eat by just walking down the street or riding your mountain bike <laughs> through the woods to get there. Then when the pandemic hit, Olivia says it just felt like things went nuts. And now you have people who are coming in and just like buying up property left and right, like, and it hurts. Now Olivia is looking at communities outside Fayetteville, hoping to find something in her price range, around $70,000. She says she totally gets why people would want to move to this area. In fact, a lot of her professional work is focused on helping more young people stay in the state. It is really good for West Virginia that people are moving here, but it also is hard. And it's like two things can exist at the same time. And those are the two realities that are existing for me. Olivia says she's committed to staying in this area, even if it means she has to keep renting a room for a few more years. Because this isn't just about finding a house. It's about staying in a community that she feels a part of. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Back in the mountains, people are friendly. They all say howdy, new pass them by. Back in the mountains, your word is your honor. A handshake is the contract for the things that you buy. That story originally aired back in March. We've got some updates. Olivia Morris was looking for her first home. She did find a house in Fayette County. It's not in Fayetteville like she hoped, but down the road in Oak Hill. As Roxy mentioned in that story, the real estate market in Fayetteville and other places around the New River Gorge is really hot right now. And it looks set to get even more popular. The Gorge has long been a destination for tourists and adventure seekers. It was originally given federal protection as a national river in 1978. Then, late last year, it became West Virginia's first national park. The new designation is bringing more people to the gorge, and some new challenges, too. Less land is open to hunting, while more visitors put more pressure on the infrastructure inside the park and in the communities around it. Just after the national park was announced, reporter Duncan Slade spoke with a few of the people who will be affected by the changes. Robert C. is a fishing and hunting guide in southern West Virginia. He's been hunting in the River Gorge since he was born. It's just a beautiful place. I mean, something about watching the fog rise and hearing the roar of the river and the sunset. I mean, it's not just about the hunting, you know? I mean, I mean, you know, it, the, the deer or the game is just a bonus. It's being there, you know, doing what your family's done, where you learn to do it at. C.'s family has been hunting here almost a century, but now that tradition is changing. 10% of the New River Gorge will become a national park. Now, national parks are strict, no hunting. C can still hunt on the rest, but he's losing access to the land he learned to hunt on. This park section is in the north, near the iconic New River Gorge Bridge, and is some of the most difficult terrain around. And the reason people do not hunt and fish it as much because it is rugged. It is tough hunting. It is tough country. 
And that's why those deer are there. That's why those animals are there, because they're not easy to get to. So he says he understands the decision, but it feels like he's lost his first love. But I learned how to hunt in the gorge. You know, it's my father, and uh, that's where I learned trees. That's where I learned direction. While hunters are losing access, the new park status is expected to improve the local economy. In 2019, visitors to the New River Gorge spent $60 million in the surrounding community, and the National Park designation is expected to increase the number of visitors. Rafting companies are some of the biggest supporters of the park's new status. We expect to see an increase. I think it'll be gradual. Haynes Mansfield works at Ace Adventure Resort. Ace is one of the big rafting outfitters in the gorge. According to commercial whitewater reports, the number of river users has declined since the 90s. But last summer, they saw an uptick. Um, honestly, the, the big increase that we've seen lately has been a cultural shift that was driven by COVID-19. Lockdowns closed the rafting industry in the spring. We were shut down. Um, we had no bookings. And then we had record sales, um, record website visits, phone calls, uh, phones ringing off the hook. This surge in visitors was also seen at hikes and popular sites for rock climbing, according to Eve West, a spokesperson with the Park Service. Mara Kistler also noticed the crowds. She's the owner of Waterstone Outdoors. It's an outdoor gear and climbing shop in Fayetteville. Kistler says the increase highlighted existing problems with an underfunded park infrastructure. And I am excited about it, but I am concerned. You know, these are not mutually exclusive. She says the park needs more trails and more parking lots so visitors can experience the beauty she gets to see every day. We don't want more people if we're not treating the resource properly and we're not providing a good experience. We don't want to send people home frustrated and annoyed. The recent legislation authorizes the park to buy up to 100 acres of land for parking lots, but provides no additional funding. That's determined by the National Park Service. Supporters of the new park status hope it brings more funding, but nothing is concrete so far. Hunters, rafters, rock climbers, hikers, and tourists alike come to the gorge for different reasons. Mansfield, the rafting outfitter, says he was drawn to the area by this wide variety of world-class outdoor activities. And that's why we're a national park, right? But look at all of those those communities that have to be served fairly, and uh, it's not an easy task. <laughs> In the years to come, the balancing act of who gets to access and who gets to use this land will continue in the New River Gorge, and who's going to pay for it. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Duncan Slade. Communities across Appalachia have used outdoor adventure as a marketing tool to get new visitors, and new residents too. The city of Roanoke, Virginia used its location in the Blue Ridge Mountains, along with new apartments downtown, to attract millennials and reverse decades of population loss. But while the change is good for the city's energy and bottom line, it can be disconcerting too. Our next story is about a business that's been a stalwart through all the changes. Ever since the 30s, customers have been able to walk into the Texas Tavern and order two and a bowl with. If you're not familiar with the tavern's lingo, that translates to two hamburgers and a bowl of chili beans with onions. The Texas Tavern recently celebrated its 91st birthday. I visited to find the secret of its longevity. Church bells ring in lunch hour on a Tuesday in downtown Roanoke. Spring is showing, so despite the pandemic, people are out and about and the Texas Tavern is doing brisk business. How's the elevator business? Up and down, buddy. Up and down. <laughs> Banter here is just part of the appeal. The diner is tiny. It's only got 10 seats, and right now they're all blocked off with yellow caution tape. But its crisp red and white paint scheme, retro signs, and the unmistakable smell of its grill practically dominate the larger buildings around it. Mark Saunders started coming here back in the 70s. He still orders the same thing. Either it's two with, a bowl and a drink, or a cheesy western, a bowl and a drink. What's kept you coming back? Because yeah. it's never changed. The Texas Tavern small menu offers up blue-collar classics like chili dogs, small hamburgers, and the cheesy western. A hamburger with a scrambled egg and the tavern's signature relish. 
Regulars tend to be passionate about their favorites. Two hot dogs and a chili bean. Cheeseburger. The Cheesy Western, number one, Texas Tavern. The price is right, too. The Cheesy Western is the most expensive item on the menu. $2.85. Owner Matt Bullington is the fourth generation of his family to run the joint. My great-grandfather, Nick Bullington, he had been a advanced man for the Ringland Brothers Circus and the Gentry Dog and Pony Show. And he had his own railroad car and he traveled all over the country. Nick Bullington was out on the road in the 1920s when he discovered White Castle, an emerging chain restaurant that sold small hamburgers, the first fast food. Bar stool, diner, open all night, hamburgers, was like the cutting edge concept in 1920, 1930. He decided to make a go of it in the diner business and opened the Texas Tavern in Roanoke in 1930. The Great Depression was taking hold, but the Norfolk and Western Railway had its headquarters there, which gave him a built-in customer base. Times were hard, but uh, it, was, it was a really fast-growing city with good economic potential. Roanoke has changed dramatically since those days. Railroad jobs are mostly gone. Downtown has completely transformed, from office buildings to rental apartments for a new, younger set. Texas Tavern's competition used to be other diners. Now it sits alongside upscale international cuisine and craft breweries. And all that was before the pandemic hit. There's more people living downtown. Of course, during COVID, it's just, it's, it's a kind of a ghost town down here. The pandemic has forced even more change. The taverns take out only now, for one thing. And Bullington's customers are craving constancy. And it's kind of one of those places people like to come back to. As everything else changes, the food stays the same. You walk in, looks like it did in 1950 or 1970 or 1990. Since he took over in 2005, Bullington has added sausage gravy to the menu and replaced an old cigarette vending machine with a vintage Coke cooler. That's about it. And that's the way regulars like it. Here's Mark Saunders again on why he keeps coming back. People constantly won't change, but change is not always good. Yeah. This is the same food that his dad sold back then, and it's never changed. And, and that's what keeps most of the people around here coming back. So while Roanoke is seeing new growth and an evolving economy, the Texas Tavern is chugging toward its 100th birthday in 2030, doing what it's always done, selling inexpensive comfort food in a setting that looks pretty much the same as when it opened. Somebody that didn't understand the business might think, Oh, you should modernize this and open up and create more seats because we only have 10 stools. But you'd be losing something. You'd be missing something. That something would be a foundational piece of Roanoke culture and cuisine, a link to the past that gives comfort in the present. When it comes to major weather events, here in Appalachia, we're somewhat sheltered. We don't have to worry as much about hurricanes and wildfires, for example, but we're hardly immune to flooding and mudslides. Across the country, more than four million homes are at risk of major flood damage. Scientists say climate change is driving a lot of this flooding through changing weather patterns, and poorer people stand to lose the most. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports. Pastor Aaron Trigg cannot say enough good things about Raynell, West Virginia, where he used to live. People were just happy and joyous and had a lot of expectation for the future. Raynell is small. About 1,500 people live there. It's got a school and a grocery store and a couple stoplights, and it's in a steep valley with a creek running through it. In the summer of 2016, there was a lot of rain, and the creek started rising. And you could hear the water up in the mountains crashing trees. And next thing you know, it was at our waist. It was evening. Trigg's house was already underwater, so he took shelter on the second floor of his neighbor's house. You could hear people screaming and hollering for help. It was a real restless night, a real just no peace at all. I did a lot of praying that night. Trigg was rescued by boat in the morning. In all, at least 23 people in West Virginia died in the floods. More than 1,000 homes were destroyed. Raynell was decimated. It's one of hundreds of small towns across the country where climate-driven flooding is an existential threat. 
New data from the First Street Foundation, a climate risk nonprofit, shows that more than 4 million homes are at risk for expensive flood damage. They're concentrated on the coasts and in Appalachia, although there are hot spots across the country. And the homeowners who will be hit the hardest are those who can't afford flood insurance. Matthew Eby is the executive director of the First Street Foundation. In America, flood insurance for the vast majority of the population is provided through FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program. And that flood insurance doesn't cost the right amount. That's according to FEMA. Every month, homeowners who have flood insurance pay a monthly premium. But those monthly premiums don't even come close to covering the actual cost of flood damage for most houses. The government always has to pick up the tab, which is why the National Flood Insurance Program has racked up more than $36 billion in debt. And it's one reason that developers keep building homes in dangerous places. To help fix all of that, FEMA is going to start raising the price of flood insurance later this year. But to actually keep up with the cost of climate change, the new data suggests that flood insurance rates would need to more than quadruple in the next 30 years, which would put flood insurance out of reach for many, if not most, families. So there'll be a ton of properties without policies that are just waiting for that that unfortunate event to happen. And then we're going to see a lot of actual economic pain because they won't have the ability to then fix the home. FEMA says the group's analysis is, quote, premature because FEMA hasn't released the full details of its new pricing scheme. But what research makes clear is that when large numbers of people don't have insurance or savings after a disaster, the effects can ripple through a community. That's exactly what happened in Raynell after the 2016 flood. Pastor Aaron Trigg was getting calls late at night from his congregants. The way I could say it is they were hopeless because they, a lot of people in Raynell were poor and they didn't have insurance. They didn't have any way to have any backup plan. He says a lot of people left town. Trigg stuck around for a few years before he too moved away for a new job. A lot of homes were never rebuilt. Today, entire blocks of Main Street are empty of businesses. John Wyatt is a city councilman and a pastor and a musician, flood survivor and the owner of a music store in Renell. He's also running for mayor. And like any good mayoral candidate, he's a booster for his town. We're a bona fide Appalachian community. And, uh, and we have a lot to offer. For example, he'd like to see Raynell host an Appalachian music festival. There are some barriers. The only motel in town has been closed since the flood nearly five years ago. But Wyatt has a vision of Raynell as a tourist destination. Maybe, if the water cooperates. If we ever have another flood like that, I can't see, uh, I just really cannot see our town surviving. I mean, it just... He trails off and picks up his guitar. Greenbrier County, West Virginia, like the We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear how West Virginians are feeling as mask restrictions are lifted and more people start coming out for shows and public events. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Back in March, when we originally aired this episode, West Virginia ranked among the best in the world for its vaccination rates. Now, five months later, the numbers have pretty much plateaued. As of mid-July, nearly 60% of state residents have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine, 
and almost half are fully vaccinated. That's according to West Virginia's health department. That puts the state behind the U.S. vaccine rate. Still, the governor lifted mask requirements in public spaces beginning on June 20th, West Virginia Day. June Leffler spoke with folks the weekend restrictions were lifted. Every weekend, Nick Quinn takes his three-year-old granddaughter out for a stroll in Charleston's East End. This Sunday, Quinn and a few other Charleston residents sit in the shaded lawn of the state's capital on West Virginia Day. This is our normal walk down to the Capitol and back anyway, so we just decided to come down and hang out for a little while. They listen to Governor Jim Justice recount the hardships faced and strides made during the pandemic. Now, we still got a ways to go, do we not? And we don't want to drop our guard. Quinn remembers his own struggles over the past year and a half. I went six weeks without seeing my granddaughter, and I've got her out today, so we're, we're just excited that, you know, we can be out, we can see people's faces again. Quinn's happy to see his family again, and his customers. Quinn's a tattoo artist. For six weeks, his tattoo parlor had to close, but now Quinn's busier than ever. We're just booked out to the point now that we're almost having to be appointment only due to the, the buildup that was created from the shutdown. For businesses that survived the pandemic, things are picking up again. Dining and shopping regulations were completely rolled back earlier this year. And large events are happening again, bringing fun-loving West Virginians with cash in hand, ready to buy food, drinks, and crafts from local vendors, like John Query with Swiftwater Cafe. He's one of dozens of vendors who came to serve up pepperoni rolls late last week at Charleston's Riverfront. We have a very traditional coal miner style pepperoni roll. We've got boar's head pepperoni and a 90 day age provolone. It's a hit. Oh, dude, yeah. That's so good. <laughs> this pepperoni roll festival brought out hundreds of people, like Joe Sesevich. We're rolling rolls on the river, down on the levee, waiting in line for a tiny little beer that hopefully is going to be pretty good. <laughs> Zesevich just graduated from WVU, and he's ready for all the festivities. I turned 21 in the pandemic, so going to bars now with the vaccine is pretty nice. The crowd is big, the lines are long, and the food is selling fast. Early in the evening, there wasn't enough to go around. We actually sold out of all of the pepperoni tasting tickets. Mallory Richards was one of the many people that helped organize the event. So that's a good sign uh, that this year's event after a long hibernation from events uh, was a success. This event is one of many happening as part of Festival. It brings two weeks worth of live arts events to Charleston in June. Last year, it was all virtual. Now, dance, music theater, and other performances are back, even if it's on a smaller scale, says Richards. And I've seen people crying in crowds, like I'm getting emotional talking to you right now just to have people in front of you and we haven't had that for over a year and that's what we're used to doing is bringing our community together in person to enjoy the arts. Performers are just as glad to be back on the stage. Dive bars like Sam's are hosting rock bands again. Johnny Compton plays in his band, the Amos Steel Company. Last Saturday night, he performed a bunch of hard rock classics. I feel really great about tonight. It was a good show. Um, yeah, a little rusty, but fun, but fun. Like many creatives during the pandemic, he went more than a year without performing for fans. But he did spend that time taking a step back and making more music. But for us, it was kind of good because we got a chance to sit down and write you know, to record this first album. So, it, you know, for us, it was not a bad deal. These are just a few scenes of the state's reopening. Storefronts in downtown Charleston are starting to take down their signs stipulating COVID-19 guidelines. They're replacing them with flyers for all kinds of events this summer. The pandemic isn't over. A new variant from India has emerged in the state that's more infectious than the current most common strand. But for now... Almost a million vaccinated West Virginians are enjoying a newfound freedom that they hope will last. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Leffler. A month has passed since Governor Justice lifted mask requirements in West Virginia. Also on West Virginia's birthday, Justice launched a COVID-19 vaccine lottery. In the last few weeks, dozens of West Virginians have gotten guns, trucks, and money. For those lucky few... 
the incentive program has been a hit. But, as June Leffler reports, for the state's overall goal of increasing vaccinations, the lottery might be a flop. Governor Jim Justice's COVID-19 sweepstakes has captured the attention of many in and outside of West Virginia. It hasn't hurt that the campaign boasts an arguably adorable mascot. How can you possibly turn down this face? Absolutely. This is little baby dog saying, please, please go get your vaccination. The state's vaccine lottery and the governor's English bulldog have been featured in national news outlets, merchandise, and a song. No doubt the program has gained some notoriety, which experts say does add to the overall goal of encouraging vaccination. Incentives only work if people are fully aware of them. That's Dr. Kevin Volpe at the University of Pennsylvania. He's not eligible for the guns and trucks West Virginia is handing out, but he's taken an interest in the state's lottery and others like it. That's because as director for the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics, he studies incentives in health care. So I asked him, are these vaccine lotteries working? I think we'll, we'll probably have an answer to that relatively soon, but it's, it's still a little bit early to say. West Virginia and others like Ohio, Kentucky, and Massachusetts are still doling out prizes. Volpe says to fairly assess how effective any state's program is, you have to see what happens when the extra incentive goes away. We really need to understand what is the effect of each of these programs relative to what would have happened had the programs not been put in place. It gets a little complicated to project what would have happened, so let's start with what has happened. Since Governor Jim Justice announced the lottery in late May, vaccinations have steadily declined. About 2,500 people a day got newly vaccinated in the days before Justice's announcement. Now, about six weeks later, that number has fallen 70%. On face value, that doesn't look good especially compared to Ohio, which saw a noticeable, though short-lived, bump in vaccinations. But researchers disagree on whether or not the lottery was the reason for the increase. A recent study out of Boston University attributes that bump to those who are newly eligible. You wouldn't want to have the lottery take credit for an increase in 12 to 15-year-olds. That's Volpe again, who says he's not making any snap judgments. And that's an example of, of some of the types of confounding factors that one has to account for in these analyses. Volpe says it's best to look at similar states or nearby counties that never had a lottery and see how their vaccination rates compare. Also, what happens when the lottery ends? If vaccination rates drastically fall off once all the prizes are gone, it would suggest that the $10 million the state spent made some difference. Justice admitted at a June press conference that the numbers could be better. But perhaps they could be worse if there were no incentives on the table. How many would we have if we had no lottery? Pick a number. And in my opinion, wholeheartedly, we got to continue to try. In the meantime, experts say there's a whole slew of other ways to convince people to get the vaccine, and that a single approach could never cut it. Volt brings up vaccine passports or mandates. It's the idea that institutions and private businesses can require participants to get vaccinated. More than 400 colleges and universities that have said if you want to be a a student living on campus, attending in person, you need to be vaccinated. That makes the school or workplace safer, and ultimately, the entire state, if it encourages more people to get vaxxed. For these students, Volpe says being on campus, living in a dorm, and interacting with peers is paramount to the college experience, which can be a huge motivator. And it's certainly a lot more important to me than getting $100 or you know, a very small chance at a lottery. It relates to my being able to live my life in a, a manner that a college student wants to. Requiring vaccines for sporting events or in-person learning could be the next incentive to examine. If having a shot at becoming a millionaire doesn't convince people, get them where it really counts, 
being able to have a normal life. For Appalachia Health News, I'm June Leffler. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. In the late 1800s, national magazine writers created the hillbilly and other stereotypes about Appalachia and its inhabitants. Ever since then, there's been no shortage of writing about the region by its visitors. What's rare is to find Appalachians with a platform to tell their own stories. But that's exactly what happened beginning in the late 1960s in Huntington, West Virginia, when a group of young people began printing pamphlets under the publishing label Appalachian Movement Press. Sean Slifer, a Pittsburgh artist who is also the creative director for the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matewan, inadvertently came across one of the press's pamphlets a few years ago, which led him on a journey to learn more. The result is a new book, titled So Much to be Angry About, Appalachian Movement Press and Radical DIY Publishing, 1969-1979. I asked Sean to read a blurb that the press used to describe itself and its work. So this is a mission statement of sorts that Appalachian Movement Press used in uh, the backs of some of their publications and in some of their catalogs. Uh, This is how they wrote about themselves in Firefox magazine for years. Appalachia is a colony. Our wealth is daily stolen from us. Our natural resources and our labor are exploited by giant corporations whose owners do not live here. Not only do these owners not live here, but they make no contribution to the process of production. Our natural resources rightfully belong to all of us, and it is by our labor alone that they are made useful to us in the form of products. Yet today we receive no value from our resources and a mere pittance for our labor. The greatest share of what is produced from our resources and labor goes into the pockets of these corporate owners who do nothing at all to earn it. They live and have become the richest people in America by exploiting us. We at the Appalachian Movement Press are dedicated to putting an end to the exploitation of our land and labor. So tell me about the book and, and how you how you tapped into this history and, and what your work revealed. It's definitely true that I get excited about uh, digging at, at stories that nobody else has, has tried to unearth. Uh, you know, that there's some kind of a unsolved mysteries type of <laughs> type of challenge to that. The process with Appalachian Movement Press really started from being handed a one of their pamphlets at a wedding that I was at at the Appalachian South Folklife Center in Pipestem uh, a few years back. And uh, it was a poetry pamphlet, and I don't, I don't spend a lot of time reading poetry, but I was very curious on the back. It said uh, Appalachian Movement Press, and I knew about movement presses in the 1960s and 70s as part of, of the left in the United States. Could, do you mind just sidebar real quick and give us a, a thumbnail on what movement press was a movement press is basically a you know a group of people who own the means of production for printing their own posters and pamphlets and in some cases books uh, any kind of publications that uh, are part of say a, a radical militant movement or in some cases a uh, a sort of just a fringe creative political movement I mean it, it runs the gamut but basically what we're talking about in the 60s and 70s when we talk about producing these things is being able to run an offset press. And when you picked up this chat book or the zine, you saw this, this label about Appalachian Movement Press. Pick up the story there. Well, their logo really is just a coal miner's pick, and it says Appalachian Movement Press in a circle around it. And I really just thought, that's cool. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I've never heard of this. And I took a picture of the logo and texted it to a couple of friends of mine who run a publication called Signal, which is a, a global survey of political graphics and graphic culture. And, and I, I, you know, I, I thought they would at least know what it was, but uh, texted them the picture and they said, wow, we never heard of this and challenged me to, to go dig up the history of it and, and in fact write an article for Signal. So when you started digging in, tell me about what you found. Who were these people um, that were running Appalachian Movement Press? 
They actually were a group of college students centered around Marshall University in Huntington who had originally spent a number of years trying to get official recognition uh, through the university for their chapter of SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, in the late 1960s. They were publishing a newsletter called Free Forum at a local print shop, and then at some point that print shop got a lot of pressure from from other people locally to, to quit publishing it, so they needed to get their own offset press. So these folks were all in their early 20s, students of various stripes who figured out how to run an offset press, branded it Appalachian Movement Press. And then originally, actually, their their goal had just been to be a really cut-rate job shop for whoever in the region needed pamphlets and flyers and, and whatnot printed for, for the activism that they were a part of. They did a lot of republishing Appalachian people's history essays and, and uh, the like that they thought were important for people to, to read and have in hand. And their distribution model was basically to distribute free or at cost to, to low-income people. And, and they had a subscription program and whatnot, and just try to try to get this stuff out there. I'm curious what qualities distinguish the Appalachian Movement Press versus its peers elsewhere in the country. What, what makes them distinctive? Appalachian Movement Press was by Appalachians for Appalachians. Everything about it was focused on uh, the information itself. And so that created a design aesthetic. What I mean by that is that the design aesthetic felt very stripped down, very of the moment. Workmanlike is a term that a friend of mine used for it. It was not very fussy in terms of design. They were neither in communication with other movement presses, nor did were they particularly concerned, I, I think, with with what those movement presses were doing. It was about Central Appalachia. Sean, thank you so much. It's been a um, pleasure to talk to you. I appreciate your time. No, it's just, it's, it, I appreciate you asking me to talk about this. Earlier, we heard about the Texas Tavern in Roanoke. And over the last year, we've done a few stories about other distinctive Appalachian restaurants. Well, if you live in West Virginia and care about food, you probably know that when it comes to hot dog joints, Yan's Hot Dogs in Fairmont is on a level all its own. Russell Yan, the owner of the iconic Lunch Spot, died earlier this year. Reporter Zach Harold has this story about Yan's life and legacy. Yan's Hot Dogs in Fairmont, West Virginia is a tiny place. There are only nine seats at the lunch counter inside. And yet this hole in the wall, which doesn't even have a sign out front, has a huge devoted following. There are regulars who go there for lunch every day. There's even a story about a homesick West Virginia boy stationed in Korea who had his mom cold pack the dogs and ship them overseas. But if you wanted a hot dog from Russell Yan, there were some rules to follow. The hot dogs came with three toppings, mustard, diced onion, and Yan's special spicy sauce. You could ask Yan to leave any of those things off, but for goodness sakes, don't ask for anything extra. I mean, you would never say ketchup. U.S. Magistrate Judge Michael Alloy used to practice law in Fairmont, so he knows the rules well. If you said ketchup, uh, you might as well just leave the place. I mean, all the regulars, their heads would pop up and... It would you just didn't say ketchup. And it may be a felony in Marion County to to have requested coleslaw on the hot dog. Russell was so adamant about making these hot dogs and making them his way that he'd get kind of gruff if customers tried any funny business. After he passed, the Marion County Convention and Visitors Bureau shared a photo of him that kind of captures this. It's a photo of Russell standing behind the counter at Yan's just like he did every day. He's a smallish guy with white hair and glasses, dressed in a white polo shirt and a white apron. There are 18 hot dog buns laid out in front of him, ready to be filled and served to customers. And he looks, honestly, a little miffed that someone has taken his photo. But really, that gruffness was just Russell's sense of humor. 
Marion County Sheriff Jimmy Riffle worked for us for over 20 years and got to see the man behind the act. Yeah, if there was a fire in a community, uh, usually when the firefighters got back to station, there would be hot dogs and drinks for them. Uh, he had a routine of every Tuesday sending hot dogs and drinks to the West Virginia State Police because that was the day back then when they gave drivers exams. And a lot of times they didn't get out of the office for lunch. If there was a bad wreck or the or the police departments were out and the uh, rescue squads were out, you know, that whenever they got back to station, there was always something for them. Russell showed that kind of courtesy to all his customers. If you'd gone in there more than once or twice, he, he would remember your order. Customers would just come in, sit down, and we knew what they wanted. He'd make them. I'd set them in front of them. He was known to occasionally sneak Little Debbie snack cakes in with kids' orders, and he took the hot dogs on vacation with him. He used to make trips to Disney World in Florida. He would take stuff to make hot dogs there and make them for the staff and the workers in, in Disney World. Aside from those Florida vacations, Russell was a constant presence at his restaurant, even as he got older and his daughter Kathy returned home to help him run the place. I called her up at the restaurant to talk about her dad. Well, truly, he didn't know anything else. You know, he came from an Italian family that worked hard, and uh, he never really had any hobbies or anything, so he always said, what, what would I do if I stayed home? I wouldn't do anything. You know, I wouldn't have anything to do. So he came to work, and he, he loved it here. This was, this was his home. You know, this is what he knew. And he enjoyed the people. And, uh, you know, it's just... Just, uh, you know, the type of person he was and and the background he came from. Then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Russell, 89 at the time, started staying home to keep from getting sick. But he still made time to pass along the restaurant's secrets to Kathy, including the recipe for Yan's famous sauce, which until recently was known only to Russell. I moved back here with my dad when my mother passed away, and then my promise to him was that I would keep it going. So um, that's what I'm doing. The restaurant wasn't open for several days following Russell's death. A sign hung on the door, closed, family emergency. Per his wishes, there was no public funeral. But by the end of January, Kathy had the place back open. And ever since, Yans has been swamped by folks coming by to get a few hot dogs and pay their respects to her dad. I can't even begin to tell you how busy we've been. And then that's the the people outpouring their love back in. I don't think he knew knew the impact that he made on the community. He just did what he thought was the right thing. And everybody thought he was gruff and had a rough exterior, but he was really, really a soft at heart. You you didn't forget him once you met him. That's Sheriff Riffle again. He'll be missed. Uh, you know, not just by family and friends, but, you know, the community in general. It's it's just one of those things when somebody passes that there won't be another one. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold. Today we've heard stories about places in Appalachia that are drawing visitors and newcomers, sometimes at a cost. Like the New River Gorge, its new national park status only elevates its prominence among hikers, paddlers, and climbers, but longtime hunters see a loss of public land. It's the same with the real estate market. The region needs new residents to drive economic prosperity, but an influx of buyers can also squeeze out lower-income people and put stress on communities. But through all these changes that are pushing Appalachians to adapt to a new world, some things still remain the same. Like the Texas Tavern, where the menu has barely changed over more than 90 years. Or Yan's Hot Dogs, where Russell Yan's dedication to making a specific style of hot dog turned him into a legend. These stories remind us how the things we're passionate about can touch others, build community, and create memories that outlast individual lives. 
I hope, listeners, that during this pandemic, you've been able to spend time chasing whatever it is that you love doing. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Wyatt, Dinosaur Burks, Kaya Cater, and Spencer Elliott. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. I'm Mason Adams. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. Find my individual account at Mason Adams, M A S O N A T O M S. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.